We are in the New Testament book of Acts, and uh, we got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so we're going to jump right into this. This book began with Jesus' followers waiting for Jesus' promise to be fulfilled. So he had promised to send the Holy Spirit to his church when he went to go be with his Father in heaven. Last week we read of the Holy Spirit being sent in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, and so we preached through that passage, and this week we get some explanation regarding what was happening at Pentecost, so at the beginning of Acts 2, as well as some ideas about what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to lead somebody. Okay, so today um, we're looking at Acts chapter 2. This is a big chunk, okay? So as I read this, I'm just going to ask you to bear with me. If you need to close your eyes, you can do that. Uh, one of the beautiful things about Acts is it, it is a really good story, okay? But sometimes we're going to cover some longer chunks of Scripture. So uh, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. You've got a device, you can swipe there. Otherwise, you can follow along behind me. Let's read this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. 
But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this lengthy passage that has so much packed into it. Would you help us to be able to sort through some of this? But as we sort through it, would you most of all just fill our hearts with faith? Would you remind us of the good news of Jesus? And would you draw us to yourself? So for all those things that cloud and crowd our minds right now, would you please allow us to be able to look at Jesus, to see him for who he is, and to accomplish good things in our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, here's what we're going to do this morning. That was a lot of words, right? A lot of words. So I'm going to give just a brief summary of what was going on in those verses. Then I'm going to make a few contextual comments about what's going on in these verses. And then last, I'm going to just let it teach us a little bit. So a few teaching themes here. So first of all, a summary as to what's going on. So on the heels of God sending the Holy Spirit to come rest on his church, we now find Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, standing up to preach the very first Christian sermon. That was what we just read, was the very first Christian sermon. Now, Acts is really unique in this regard. So the whole book of Acts is about 25% of it is speeches like this, lengthy speeches. Now, I'm not wanting to assess or to grade Peter's sermon, but simply let it preach to us this morning. In his sermon, though, it has a strong tie to the Old Testament. So there's three different Old Testament quotations given in these verses. One of them is from the Old Testament book of Joel, which many of us probably have not spent a ton of time in. And then there's two also from the Old Testament book of Psalms. Now, when we read passages of Scripture like this, and there's references to the Old Testament, there's a tendency in us to just begin to check out a little bit, because we might think, like, I don't get what's going on there at all. And, and so I just want to encourage us to really try and engage with this, that there's really good news in these verses. And that's what Peter is doing for us. He's referring back to the Old Testament. He's saying, this is how these talk about Jesus. And he's connecting dots for us. So in this sermon, Peter is explaining what is occurring or what occurred at Pentecost, why the people were speaking in various languages. 
And one of his emphases, which we talked about last week, is God promised it. He promised to send his Holy Spirit, and now he is fulfilling that promise. And Peter demonstrates by referring to specific Old Testament passage, passages where something was spoken about a future event, right? So we're, I'm saying, like, God promised it, and now he's fulfilling it. And Peter, that's what he's doing in his sermon as well. He's pointing back to these promises that were made by God through specific individuals in history, and then how those things are being fulfilled in and through what was happening at Pentecost. Now, for us, it's not always explicit. We, we're going to read those passages in the Old Testament and say, I don't see Jesus there at all. But Peter's trying to help us. He's kind of holding our hand and saying, no, this is how we see Jesus in the Old Testament, how this is all one story for us. So Peter preaches this sermon that ultimately is making much of Jesus. And as he preaches Jesus, what it does then is it creates a response in the hearers. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. Okay, so some contextual comments here for us. Three things that I want to look at. So first of all, verse 40, it says, end with many words. Verse 17 says, the last days. And then I want to talk a little bit about King David. So first I want to state that what's recorded about Peter's sermon is not the whole sermon. Okay, in verse 40 we read, end with many other words. So we are getting Luke's summary through the leading of the Holy Spirit of Peter's sermon. Now that doesn't mean it's unreliable at all. What we are receiving, what we can read in the book of Acts here is sufficient for us. It's what God intended. Now maybe it's the, the pastor in me that's saying this because you might say to me, well, Kevin, you just read that in four minutes, right? Why do you need more than four minutes to preach your sermon, right? But, but there's a lot more that Peter was unpacking in that day and there's a lot more that I want to try to unpack for us this morning. Okay, so the second contextual comment that I want to make then refers to the phrase, the last days. And this leads us into the, the Old Testament quotation from the book of Joel, okay? So as Peter quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel, um, he is stating that what Joel wrote about many, many years before is now being fulfilled at Pentecost. When Joel spoke of God's Spirit being poured out on people, that is what was happening at Pentecost. And in this, Peter is saying, the last days are upon us now. In the first century. That's what he's saying. Now we tend to think of the last days, even here today, as a future event. But Peter is saying, they were a current reality in the first century. Now we explored this quite a bit when we preached through the book of Revelation last year. But, but one of the conclusions that we came to in that book is that the last days are now, here, today. We are living in the last days. And this is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. Now, a common pushback to this is, but what about all the crazy images we read about in Revelation or what Joel says here with the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. So this type of writing that we read in the book of Revelation that we're getting here 
from the book of Joel as well is what we call apocalyptic writing. So the Greek word is apocalypsis, okay? And that word is translated revelation, okay? So that's the word where we get the title of the book of Revelation. God is revealing things to us. The thing about this type of of writing, though, apocalyptic writing, is that it's filled with symbolism, which means when it says the moon will turn to blood doesn't necessarily literally mean that, okay? So it's a symbolic image, a provocative description that's intended to paint a picture while also grabbing one's attention. And I'm not going to get into all of the realities of symbolism this morning. We unpacked a lot of that in the book of Revelation. But we try to talk about symbolism from time to time here because it pops up a lot in the Bible. Now, our tendency, if we would just read this literally, like the moon has to turn to blood, our tendency then, what we will do is we'll begin to turn to news sources or to social media, to look for events, fulfilling of events. Like, oh, I read this in the Bible, so now I've got to look out here in the news or in the culture to find that fulfillment. And so what happens there is really dangerous because the danger is we become fixated on signs. We don't become fixated on Jesus. And the Bible is really clear. Our eyes are to be fixed on Jesus. And this, I would contend, what Peter is saying is why the Holy Spirit is given to us. To help us with this reality that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus. So the last days began with Jesus' death and his resurrection. And they will continue until he returns a second time. So that means the last days are thousands of years. Yes, that's what this means. But now is the time that God has poured out his spirit. So the tendency in human, ma- human nature is to think, well, it's thousands of years. Well, I'll just wait until I see the moon turning to blood, and then I'll get serious about it. But, but God's intent as we read this and understand this is that we would have urgency today, not when the moon turns to blood, But today, we are in the last days. That's God's intent for us, that we would have urgency here and now. And there's a great picture here. As we're reading about these last days and what happens in these last last days, a great picture of who the Spirit is given to. Notice this, it says, God's Spirit is given to male and female, to both the old and the young. It even talks about his spirit being given to servants. So what this is saying is that God's spirit is not given simply to the accomplished, not to the impressive. God's spirit is given to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And so the urgent call for us then is to call upon the name of the Lord and to trust in him Trust him to give the Holy Spirit. He is the one who saves us. We're not to be enamored with the signs and wonders, but with the one who does the signs and wonders. 
We are not also to be overwhelmed by the destruction or the downfall of the world around us. Because even in this, Jesus promises to save us out of the worst of things, out of the uttermost. And so our eyes are intended to be fixated on him throughout the last days for all of us. Okay, the third contextual item I want to touch on then is King David. Okay, so we, we've talked here a little bit about the quotation from the book of Joel. Now I want to talk about the quotations from Psalms because these are both written by King David. So the two Psalms are Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Now in those Psalms, David is writing about his specific life circumstances. But Peter, as he is reading what David wrote many years prior, is he is saying that those words actually that David wrote were primarily about Jesus. That they weren't primarily about David himself. But they are to be read, as we read this through the lens of the New Testament, we are to read those words as being primarily about Jesus. And that is what he is doing in his sermon here in Acts 2. Now, David, when he is writing, he speaks of a form of resurrection, okay? And he's saying that he is thankful that he was not relegated to a grave, that God saved him from a circumstance in life where he felt death around him. His enemies were coming near, threatening his life, but he did not die. And so Peter is reading the words of David as primarily being about Jesus, which means then Jesus is the one who ultimately died. David faced the prospect of death, but he didn't ultimately need resurrection. But Jesus did because he actually tasted death for us. Now in these two psalm quotations, um, as Peter is talking about David, we've got to understand that David is the greatest king in Israel, okay? He's the greatest king in Israel. He was the most powerful man in Israel. Israel prospered significantly under King David, but as he's talking about himself as being the most powerful man in Israel, he talks about him having a Lord above him, an authority that was over him, okay? So that, that's what David is saying in the midst of this. And, and as he's talking about resurrection here, this clearly can't be in reference to himself. And Peter alludes to this in his sermon. But this can't be about David's resurrection because David's still in a grave. And that's what Peter points to. He says, we know where that grave is. And we know that Peter or, or that David is still in that grave. And, and so this can't be written about David. Ultimately, this has to be about Jesus. Because his grave is empty. He truly did raise from the dead. And so the greater Lord that David writes about is the one who has resurrected from the grave. Jesus is the fulfillment of the greatest Israelite king. David played a significant role in his lifetime. He did many great things in and through and for the life of Israel, and yet his life is primarily about Jesus. That's true for David. 
hundreds of years before Jesus came in the flesh. Why is this significant? That's a reasonable question. Why is Peter preaching in this way? What's the big deal for his hearers in the first century? Peter is preaching to people who have an awareness of Jesus. But they also have this awareness to the teachings of the Old Testament as well. So what Peter is doing is he's trying to help these individuals understand how, how what happens, what's written in the Old Testament intersects with what is happening on the day of Pentecost. How do these things come together? How are they married up? There has to be sense made of this. And so Peter is trying to help his listeners to understand the intricate connection of how Jesus is the fulfillment. How he is better than everything that came before him. Peter wants his listeners to understand that the power witnessed at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and there's the sound of the rushing wind, and there are tongues like fire that come and rest on people, and people are speaking in many language, in languages. In the demonstration of all of this, he wants his hearers to understand this is all flowing from Jesus. That it's not just a bunch of crazy events, but Jesus is behind all of this. And so what he's doing is he's centralizing Jesus in all of this and in his teaching, and he's calling people to believe in Jesus by pointing back hundreds of years to King David and things that he wrote that maybe at first reading for us we would never make the connection to Jesus, but he's helping to connect dots for us. Okay, so the centralization of Jesus and this call to belief then, this segues into how this preaches to us today. So in verse 22, Peter says, hear these words. And then he says, Jesus. So in the middle of a couple of quotations from the Old Testament that maybe seem obscure to us, This is the central point. Jesus. This is what Peter wants his hearers to hear. This is what we, today in the 21st century, this is what we need to hear. This is the central part of the Bible, of the Christian faith, Jesus' death and his resurrection. This is why we continually come back to this over and over and over Now, if we doubt this, think maybe we make too big a deal about Jesus. Maybe we make too big a deal about Jesus' cross and his resurrection. We should hear from Peter and what he's preaching here. He says, this was a man attested to you by God. So God displayed the divine nature of Jesus through mighty works and signs and wonders. And and this man, Jesus, who hails from the podunk town of Nazareth, which it's, it's explicitly mentioned here. It's almost as though Peter is saying, yes, that Jesus, the one from podunk Nazareth, that's the one I'm talking about. Believe that, that he was sent from God. That is the Jesus And these are the events around his life that hold central importance. 
then and now, for them and for us today. And then verse 23 speaks of this mysterious reality of how Jesus was delivered up to die according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Peter's focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying, God planned this. God planned this. And Jesus was part of the making of this plan because he is God. And this gives credence to what Peter was saying about God. This was always the plan. We can go back to the book of Joel. We can go back to the book of Psalms. And we can see how this was always plan A. God didn't have to adjust his plan because humanity messed up in ways that he didn't anticipate. Jesus was always plan A. And and so this is intended to bring us comfort. As we find Peter connecting dots for us in the Old Testament and saying, no, this was actually speaking about Jesus, there are going to be times in our lives when we're going to wonder, man, this whole Bible thing, did God actually intend for this to be the case? Does this actually make sense when we go through dark nights, when we feel doubts at times? This is where we need to go back to, to be reminded, to be comforted by the fact No, Jesus was always plan A. This has always been God's intention. This is how he always planned to work throughout history. Yet the mystery here is found in Peter's next statement. Though Jesus was always the plan, it was the hands of sinful men that killed Jesus. And Peter gets really direct here. He says, you crucified and killed him. Okay, so we could go back to that crowd that Peter's preaching to, all right? And, and we can know not everyone there, probably none of them there, nailed Jesus' hands and feet to the cross. That, that they weren't the ones swinging the tools that caused Jesus' beating prior to his crucifixion. Maybe some of them were in the crowd calling for his crucifixion, but clearly there was some distance for all of them. And yet, Peter is really clear here. He says, you killed. You crucified Jesus. And I think part of Peter's intention is for us as we read this today is that we would also feel that, that we are complicit in that. Not to shame us in any way, but for us to feel the weightiness of our own sin. Our own sin put Jesus on that cross. He had to go there for us, just as much as those who are putting him on the cross. And this is why this whole event is shocking, why the Joel passage is profound. The Spirit, God's Spirit, is poured out on these people, the ones who crucified Jesus. This is where His Holy Spirit goes to, is poured out on 
And that's true for us today. This is grace. This is undeserved favor from God. He pours out his spirit on people, on those who killed and crucified his son. And this is where the work of the Spirit is seen to be beautiful and intentional. The Spirit is going to bring us back to the cross over and over throughout our Christian life to remind us of the vastness of our sin as well as the overwhelming immensity of God's love in the face of our sin. This is the best news ever. And, and if, if we don't feel that, if we don't feel like this is the best news ever, we're not getting it. Like, we're not understanding it. It hasn't landed on us with weight as it's intended to. If we just wake up and just kind of, oh yeah, the gospel thing. No, this is intended to shape us. When we roll out of bed, skipping before the coffee enters our veins, right? Okay, maybe skipping's a little a little excessive. But you get the point, right? That, that's his intention, that it is life-shaping every single day when we've got tough meetings ahead of us, when we've got sick family, when stuff is not going right, that we still have this robust hope in the midst of it that sturdies us and holds us. It is the best news ever. The fact that God would stare in the face of our sin and keep his gaze of affection on us and continue to do that throughout our lives. To be loved like this, there is nothing like this, nothing else. And I want us to see clearly here what the work of the Spirit is. The work of the Spirit is to point us to Jesus. To point us to the gospel. Now, we oftentimes maybe associate God's Spirit with, with things like spiritual gifts, right? That, that the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can possess a spiritual gift or gifts. But I would contend, and I think that's what Peter is doing here in his sermon, is contending that the point of the Holy Spirit being given to us is to orient us back to Jesus. N- not just to like allow us to do fun things or cool things. Not, not just so we can be generous. Not just so we can be an encouragement to others. Not just so we can speak in tongues. And those things are great. And I'm not poo-pooing any of them, but those things flow out of us understanding who Jesus is and us rooting ourselves in him. Those are not the main thing. The main thing is Jesus. So after Peter speaks to the Spirit being poured out, the emphasis of Peter's teaching then is Jesus' cross and Jesus' resurrection. So with this, I just want to highlight something that maybe we get a misdirected thought about with the Holy Spirit from 
from time to time. So the Holy Spirit does not come to make us good people. Your pastor is saying this. The Holy Spirit does not come to make us good people. He doesn't. That's not why Jesus comes. Now, as we trust in Jesus, as we look at him, I would contend goodness will be formed in us, and goodness will come out of us. But that is not his primary intention. Because so, if that is what it's about, right, and, and then we view ourselves as the good people, what are we going to think about the bad people, right? We're going to look down on those people. We're going to think less of those people. So it's not about good and bad people. It's about saved and unsaved. And if any person is saved, they're going to understand, even if it's their enemy, where an unsaved person is headed, what they're living with. And our hope and our plea should be that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus as well. Even if we've been severely hurt by someone. So it is not about the Holy Spirit making us good people. He's pointing us to the one who is good. To the one who saves. So we need to read between the lines here in Peter's sermon. The Holy Spirit is given to us because we need help. Maybe, maybe we have, maybe we're not unsaved at this point, right? But we were. And that doesn't mean that just because we're saved that we no longer need the help of the Holy Spirit. No. This is true for every Christian every day as well. We don't naturally tend towards Jesus, okay? We get busy with a million things, and it's going to look differently for all of us, but we all get busy with stuff. We get distracted. We prioritize other things in our lives, and then Jesus gets the leftovers, right? And and so we need God's Spirit to come to us in gentleness and redirect us and when we wake up on a Sunday morning and we're tired and we're like, ah, i just like to sleep in. We need God's Spirit to prompt us to say, no, you need to hear the gospel. You need to hear why this is the best news in the world. Not because this is the greatest pastor, not because this is the greatest church, but because you need to hear about Jesus. You need to be reminded of the hope that's found in him. And I do as well. So we are a people who need the Holy Spirit. Okay. The second observation in these verses is that the gospel beckons a response. Okay? We need to hear it often, but then also as we hear it, it beckons a response from us. It says that these people were cut to the heart. So they were confronted simultaneously with their guilt and with God's love. They were compelled then to respond. Notice they weren't coerced. They weren't shamed in this. No no one was pushing them to respond in this way. They wanted to respond. And Peter's answer to the question is repent. Repent means to basically turn away 
So turn away from sin and turn towards Jesus. So Peter says, and really that's an expression of belief, right? Turn from believing in this thing and turn towards believing in Jesus. And so Peter says, repent and be baptized. Essentially he's saying, believe and symbolize it. Okay? Believe the gospel. Believe the fact that Jesus went into a grave and came out. Believe that and then symbolize it by going into water and coming out of water. Believe the gospel and symbolize it. Identify yourself with Jesus. This is the proper response to being confronted by the grace of God. So the gospel should beckon a response to us. And, and don't, please don't hear me saying beckon a response one time in your life. This is like hundreds of times every single day, right, that we need to be responding to the gospel. This is all the time. Okay, last point of emphasis here is on the 3,000. So I don't know if you notice this. The, these verses ended talking about 3,000 souls being added to the number. So there was 120, right? And then there was 3,000, or 3,120, essentially. Okay? So we might look at this and be like, oh, that's kind of a weird number, or think nothing of the number. But I want to dig just briefly into this. So I want to go Old Testament with this. When Moses went to receive the the Ten Commandments from God. So he went up on Mount Sinai, and he was receiving the Ten Commandments from God. Well, he was up there for a while, okay? And the rest of Israel got restless and impatient. They're like, ah, maybe he's not coming down. So they built themselves a god, a golden calf, okay? So you you can do a whole study here on the, the whole idea of waiting, right? So we talked about waiting and how Jesus' followers were intended to wait at the beginning of Acts, and they waited by praying. That's what we read in Acts uh, 1 and 2, right? Well, you contrast this to, with the waiting that went on at Mount Sinai. and It's very different. I'm not going to go into that this morning. But they were impatient, okay? Israel was impatient. Now, all of this is occurring around the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of God's law. Okay, and this is a terrifying scene filled with darkness, fire, thunder, and lightning, judgment, fear, don't touch the mountain, you'll die kind of thing, right? Like this was a scary scene. So in their making a new God, they sin grievously against God. Okay, so what I want to hone in on here as we're talking about the 3,000 is this. Exodus 32, 28. This was the judgment for their making a new God. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. Okay, we talk here at Center Church about this strong distinction between old and new. There are things between the Old Testament and New Testament that are, um, we see continuity. Okay, but we also want to point out there's a lot of discontinuity as well. All right? Law was given, but law was done away with. Hebrews 8.13 says, when Jesus comes, he makes the law obsolete. That's the word that is used. God's law is obsolete. So then we see this movement from law 
to grace, law to gospel, okay? The gospel is far better news than law, all right? And this, this is why 2 Corinthians 3.6 states this. The law, or the word here is called letter, but it's talking specifically about the Ten Commandments. It says, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. So when God's law came, 3,000 men died. And when God's law, or, or when God's spirit came, 3,000 people were saved and added. And we see the beauty that comes with God's spirit coming. He brings life. He doesn't kill. He brings life. And so the Holy Spirit is given to us to point us to the one who saves, which is ultimately Jesus, to point us to his cross and to his resurrection. And so I want to end here with one point of gospel application for us. God's Spirit is poured out on those who believe in Jesus. This is an invitation for us to believe in Jesus. And this is so vital for us to understand our need for God's Spirit to be influential in our lives. So the rest of this book of Acts is about the spread of the good news of Jesus in the first century. As God's Spirit is poured out on lives, it begins to to create this distinctive shape in people. And we read about what the fruit of the Spirit, what this distinctive shape is in Galatians 5. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what Jesus is intending to form in us through the working of the Holy Spirit. And this list comprises character, characteristics that all of us are drawn to, right? We're drawn to gentleness, not harshness. That's true for all of us. And so as God's Spirit is poured out on us, this is what others are intended to experience or encounter through us, what non-Christians in our lives will begin to identify as marks of Jesus. Not some political position that we hold, but these. These are the things God intends for those far from him to experience as they interact with us in our lives. And so this is a diagnostic for us. Are our lives marked by these things? And if not, the answer isn't don't try, don't try harder. It's not try harder, right? It's believe. Believe in Jesus. Call f- upon the Holy Spirit to come and reorient you, redirect you back to Jesus' death and his resurrection.